Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Yes, it's that time again, when you're sitting comfortably to get a nice big earful of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a marvellous thing written by Douglas Adams. He wrote three books, but then sort of went past it a bit, and we're now in book five. In this particular section, Arthur Dent and Fenny... Fenchurch are getting to know each other extremely well and we're just wondering about what happens if you happen to have a Felornis fire dragon nearby and this is what happens. In ancient days, when Franglis sang and Saxoquin of the Quinilux held sway, when the air was sweet and the nights fragrant, but everyone somehow managed to be all, so they claimed, though how on earth they could have thought anyone was even remotely likely to believe such a preposterous claim, what with all the sweet air and fragrant nights and what not, is anyone's guess, virgins, it was not possible to heave a rock on Bequinda on the froth of Alvars without hitting at least half a dozen forlornest fire dragons. Whether you'd want to do that is another matter. Not that fire dragons weren't an essentially peace-loving species, because they were. They adored it to bits, and this wholesale adoring of things to bits was often in itself the problem. One so often hurts the ones one loves, especially if one is a furlornest fire dragon with breath like a rocket booster and teeth like a park fence. Another problem was that once they were in the mood, they often went on to hurt quite a lot of the ones that other people loved as well. Add to all that that the relatively small number of madmen who actually went around the place heaving bricks, you'd end up with a lot of people on Bequinda and the froth of Alvars getting seriously hurt by dragons. But did they mind? They did not. Were they hurt to bemoan their fate? No. The Felonis fire dragons were revered throughout the lands of Bequinder in the Foth of Falwars for their savage beauty, their noble ways and their habit of biting people who didn't revere them. Why was this? The answer was simple. Sex. There is, for some unfathomed reason, something almost unbearably sexy about having huge fire-breathing magical dragons flying low about the sky on moonlit nights which were already dangerously on the sweet and fragrant side. Why this should be so, the romance-besotted people of Bequinter in the Froth of Alvars could not have told you, and would not have stopped to discuss the matter once the effect was up and going, for no sooner would a flock of half a dozen silk-winged, leather-bodied, felonious fire-dragons heave into sight across the evening horizon than half of the people of Bequinder are scurrying off into the woods with the other half, there to spend a busy, breathless night together and emerge with the first rays of dawn, all smiling and happy and still claiming rather endearingly to be virgins if rather flushed and sticky virgins pheromones some researchers said something sonic others claimed the place was always stiff with researchers trying to get to the bottom of it all and taking a very long time about it not surprisingly, the guide's graphically enticing description of the general state of affairs on this planet has proved to be astonishingly popular amongst hitchhikers who allow themselves to be guided by it, and so it has simply never been taken out, and is therefore left to latter-day travellers to find out for themselves that today's modern Bequinder in the city-state of Alvars is now little more than concrete strip joints and dragon burger bars. 
Chapter 22 The night in Easelington was sweet and fragrant. There were, of course, no Falonis fire dragons about in the alley, but if any had chanced by, they might just as well have sloped off across the road for a pizza, for they were not going to be needed. Had an emergency cropped up while they were still in the middle of their American hots with extra anchovy, have sent a message to put dire straits on the stereo, which is now known to have much the same effect. No, said Fenchurch, not yet. Arthur put dire straits on the stereo. Fenchurch pushed ajar the upstairs front door to let in a little more of the sweet, fragrant night air. They both sat on some of the furniture made out of cushions, very close to the open bottle of champagne. No, said Fenchurch, not till you've found out what's wrong with me. Which beat? But I suppose, she added very, very, very quietly, you may as well start with where your hand is now, Arthur said. So which way do I go? Down, said Fenchurch. On this occasion, he moved his hand. Down, she said. Is the fact the other way? Oh, yes. Mark Knopfler has an extraordinary ability to make a stretcher customs stratocaster hoot and sing like angels on a Saturday night, exhausted from being good all week and eating a stiff beer, which is not strictly relevant to this point, since the record hadn't he got to that bit, but there will be too much else going on when he does, and furthermore, the chronicler does not intend to see it here with a track list and a stopwatch, so it seems best to mention it now while things are still moving slowly. And so we come said Arthur, to your knee. There's something terribly and tragically wrong with your left knee. My left knee, said Fenchurch, is absolutely fine. So it is. Did you know that? What? Hmm. It's all right. I can tell you do. No, keep going. So it has to be something to do with your feet? She smiled in the dim light and wiggled her shoulders non-committally against the cushions. Since there are cushions in the universe, on Squelchellus Beta, to be exact, two worlds from the swampland of the mattresses, that actively enjoyed being wiggled against, particularly if it's non-committally because of the syncopated way in which the shoulders move, it's a pity they weren't there. They weren't, but such is life. Arthur held her left foot in his lap and looked at it very carefully. All kinds of stuff about the way her dress fell away from her legs was making it difficult for him to think particularly clearly at this point. I have to admit, he said, that I really don't know what I'm looking for. You'll know when you find it, she said. Really, you will. There was a slight catch in her voice. It's not that one. Feeling increasingly puzzled, Arthur let her foot down onto the floor and moved himself around so he could take her right foot. She moved forward, put her arms around and kissed him because the record had got to that bit, which, if you knew the record, you would know made it impossible not to do this. She gave him her right foot. He stroked it, ran his fingers round her ankle, under her toes, along the instep, could find nothing wrong with it. She watched him with great amusement, laughed and shook her head. No, no, don't stop, she said, but it's not that one now. Arthur stopped and frowned at her left foot on the floor. Don't stop. He stroked her right foot, ran his fingers around her ankle, under her toes, along the instep and said, You mean it's something to do with the leg I'm holding? She did another of the shrugs that would have brought such joy into the life of a simple cushion from Squanchella's beta. He frowned. Pick me up, she said quietly. He let her right foot down to the floor and stood up. So did she. 
He picked her up in his arms and they kissed again. This went on for a while. Then she said, now put me down again. Still puzzled, he did so. Well, she looked at him almost challengingly. So what's wrong with my feet, she said. Arthur still did not understand. He sat on the floor and then got down on his hands and knees to look at her feet in situ, as it were, in their normal habitat. And as he looked closely, something odd struck him. He put his head right down to the ground and peered. There was a long pause. He sat back heavily. Yes, he said, I see what's wrong with your feet. They don't touch the ground. So what do you think? Arthur looked up at her quickly and saw the deep apprehension making her eyes suddenly dark. She bit her lip and was trembling. What do... she stammered. Are you... she shook her hair forward over her eyes that were filling with dark tears. He stood up quickly, put his arms around her and gave her a single kiss. Perhaps you can do what I can do, he said, and walked through her upstairs window. The record got to the good bit. Chapter 23 The battle raged on about the Star of Zaxis. Hundreds of the fierce and horribly beweaponed Zilzar ships had now been smashed and wrenched atoms by the withering forces which the huge silver Zaxian ship was able to deploy. Power of the Moon had gone too, blasted away by those same blazing force guns that ripped the very fabric of space as they passed through it. The Zerzla ships that remained, horribly beweaponed though they were, were now hopelessly outclassed by the devastating power of the Zaxian ship, and were fleeing for cover behind the rapidly disintegrating moon when the Zaxian ship, in hurtling pursuit behind them, suddenly announced that it needed a holiday, and left the field of battle. All was redoubled fear and consternation for a moment, for the ship was gone. With the stupendous powers at its command, it flitted across vast tracts of irrationally shaped space, quickly, effortlessly, and above all, quietly. Deep in its greasy smelling bunk, fashioned out of the maintenance hatchway, Ford Prefect slept among the towels, dreaming of old haunts. He dreamt at one point of his slumbers in New York. In his dream, he was walking late at night along the east side, beside the river which had become so extravagantly polluted that new life-forms are now emerging from it spontaneously, demanding welfare and voting rights. One of those now floated past, waving Ford waved back. The thing thrashed to the shore and struggled up the bank. Hi, it said. I've just been created. I'm completely new to the universe in all respects. Is there anything you can tell me? Phew, said Ford, little nonplussed. I can tell you where some bars are, I guess. What about love and happiness? I sense deep needs for things like that, it said, waving its tentacles. Got any leads there? You can get some like what you require, said Ford, on 7th Avenue. I instinctively feel, said the creature urgently, that I need to be beautiful. Am I? You're pretty direct, aren't you? No point in mucking about, am I? To me, said Ford, no, but listen, he added for a moment, most people make out, you know. Are there any like you down there? Search me, Buster, said the creature. As I said, I'm new here. Life is entirely strange to me. What's it like? Here was something that Ford felt he could speak about with authority. Life, he said, is like a grapefruit. Ah, uh, how so? 
Well, it's sort of orangey-yellow and dimpled on the outside, wet and squidgy in the middle, and it's got pips inside too. Oh, and some people have half of one for breakfast. Is there anyone else out there I can talk to? I expect so, said Ford. Ask a policeman. Deep in his bunk, Ford Prefect wriggled and turned onto his other side. It wasn't his favourite type of dream because it didn't have eccentrica galumbits, the triple-breasted hall of Eroticon 6 in it, whom many of his dreams did feature, but at least he was a dream. At least he was asleep. Chapter 24 Luckily, there was a strong updraft in the alley, because Arthur hadn't done this sort of thing for a while, at least not deliberately. And deliberately is exactly the way you're not meant to do it. He swung down sharply, nearly catching himself a nasty crack on the jaw of the doorstep, and tumbled through the air, so suddenly stunned with what a profoundly stupid thing he had done that he completely forgot the bit about hitting the ground, and didn't. Nice trick, he thought to himself, if you can do it. The ground was hanging menacingly above his head. He tried not to think about the ground. What an extraordinarily big thing it was, and how much it would have hurt him if he decided to stop hanging there and suddenly fell on him. He decided to think nice thoughts about lemurs instead, which was exactly the right thing to do, because he couldn't at that moment remember precisely what a lemur was, if it was one of those things that swept in great majestic herds across the plains of wherever, or if that was just wildebeest. So it was a tricky kind of thing to think nice thoughts about without simply resorting to an inky sort of general well-disposedness towards things, and this all kept his mind well occupied, while his body tried to adjust to the fact that it wasn't touching anything. A Mars bar wrapper fluttered down the hallway. After a seeming moment of doubt and indecision, it eventually allowed the wind to ease it, flutteringly between him and the ground. Arthur! The ground was still hanging menacingly above his head, and he thought it was probably time to do something about that, such as fall away from it, which is what he did. Slowly, very, very slowly. As he slowly fell, very, very slowly, he closed his eyes, carefully, so as not to jolt anything. The feel of his eyes closing ran down his whole body. Once it had reached his feet and the whole of his body was alerted to the fact that his eyes were now closed and was not panicked by it, he slowly, very, very slowly, revolved his body one way and his mind the other. That should sort the ground out. He could feel the air clear about him now, breezing around him, quite cheerfully, untroubled by his being there, and slowly, very, very slowly, as if from a deep and distant sleep, he opened his eyes. He had flown before, of course, flown many times on cricket, until all the bird talk had driven him quite scatty, but this was different. Here he was in his own world, quietly and without fuss, beyond a slight trembling which could have been attributable to a number of things, being in the air. Ten or fifteen feet below him was the hard tarmac, and a few yards off to the right the yellow street lights of Upper Street. Luckily the alleyway was dark, since the light which was supposed to see through it that night was on an ingenious time switch, which meant it came on just before lunchtime, went off again just as the evening was beginning to draw in. It was therefore safely shrouded in a blanket of dark obscurity. He slowly, very, very slowly, lifted his head to Fenchurch, was standing in silent, breathless amazement, silhouetted in an upstairs doorway. Her face was inches from his. 
I was about to ask you, she said in a low, trembling voice, what you were doing, but then I realised that I could see what you were doing. You were flying, so it seemed, she went on, after a slight wandering pause, like a bit of a silly question, Arthur said. Can you do it? No. Would you like to try? She bit her lip and shook her head, not so much as to say no, but just in sheer bewilderment. She was shaking like a leaf. It's quite easy, urged Arthur, if you don't know how. That's the important bit. Be not at all sure how you're doing it. Just to demonstrate how easy it was, he floated down the alley, fell upwards quite dramatically and bobbed back down to her like a banknote on the breath of wind. Ask me how I did that. How did you do that? No idea, not a clue. She shrugged in bewilderment. So how can I? Arthur bobbed down a little lower and held out his hand. I want you to try, he said, to step on my hand. Just one foot. What? Try it. Nervously, hesitantly, almost, she told herself, as if she was trying to step on the hand of someone who was floating in front of her in mid-air. She stepped onto his hand. Now the other. What? Take the weight off your back foot. I can't. Try it. Like this? Like that. Nervously, hesitantly, almost she told herself as if she stopped telling herself what she was doing because she had a feeling she didn't altogether want to know. She fixed her eyes very firmly on the guttering in the roof of the decrepit warehouse opposite, which had been annoying her for weeks because it was clearly going to fall off, and she wondered if anyone was going to do anything about it or whether she ought to say something to somebody and didn't think for a moment about the fact that she was standing on the hands of someone who was in fact standing on nothing at all. Now, said Arthur, take your weight off your left foot. She thought that the warehouse belonged to the carpet company who had the offices around the corner and took the weight off her left foot so she could probably go and see them about the gutter. Now, said Arthur, take the weight off your right foot. I can't try. She hadn't seen the guttering from quite this angle before, and it looked to her now as if, as well as mud and gunge up there, might be also a bird's nest. If she leaned forward just a little and took her weight off her right foot, she could probably see it more clearly. Arthur was alarmed to see that someone down in the alley was trying to steal her bicycle. He particularly didn't want to get involved in an argument at the moment, though the guy would do it quietly and not look up. He had the quiet, shifty look of someone who habitually stole bicycles in alleys and habitually didn't expect to find their owners hovering several feet above them. He was relaxed by both these habits and went about his job with a purpose and concentration, and when he found that the bike was unarguably bound by hoops of tungsten carbide to an iron bar embedded in concrete, he peacefully bent both its wheels and went on his way. Arthur let out a long-held breath. See what a piece of eggshell I found for you, said Fenchurch in his ear. Those who are regular followers of the doings of Arthur Dent may have received an impression of his character and habits, which, while it includes the truth and, of course, nothing but the truth, falls somewhat short in its composition of the whole truth in all its glorious aspects. And the reasons for this are obvious. Editing, selection, the need to balance that which is interesting with that which is relevant and cut out all the tedious happenstance. Like this, for instance. Arthur Dent went to bed, he went up the stairs, 
all 15 of them opened the door, went to his room, took off his shoes and socks and then all the rest of his clothes one by one and left them in a neatly crumpled heap on the floor. He put on his pyjamas, the blue ones with the stripe, he washed his face and hands, cleaned his teeth, went to the lavatory, realised that once again he had got this all in the wrong order, had to wash his hands again, went to bed. He read for 15 minutes, spending the first 10 minutes of the trying to work out where in the book he got to the previous night. Then he turned out the light and within a minute or so, he was asleep. It was dark. He lay on his left side for a good hour. After, he moved restlessly to his sleep for a moment and then turned over to sleep on his right side. Another hour before his eyes flickered briefly and slightly scratched his nose, though there was still a good 20 minutes to go before he turned back into his left side. And so he whiled away the night, sleeping. At four, he got up and went to the lavatory again. He opened the door to the lavatory. And so on. It's gruff. It doesn't advance the action. It makes for nice fat books, such as an American market thrives on. But it doesn't actually get you anywhere. You don't, in short, want to know. But there are other omissions as well, beside the teeth cleaning and trying to find fresh socks. And in some of these, people have often seemed inordinately interested. What they would want to know is all that stuff from the wings with Arthur and Trillian. Did that ever get anywhere? To which the answer is, of course, mind your own business. And what they say he was up to on those nights on that planet cricket, just because the planet didn't have Felonis fire dragons or dire straits, doesn't mean that everyone just sat up at night reading. Or to take a more specific example, what about the night after the committee meeting party on prehistoric Earth when Arthur found himself sitting on a hillside watching the moon rise over the softly burning trees in company with a beautiful young girl called Mella, recently escaped from a lifetime of staring every morning at a hundred nearly identical photographs of moodily lit tubes of toothpaste in the art department of an advertising agency in the planet Golga Frincham. What then? What happened next? And the answer is, of course that the book ended. The next one didn't resume the story till five years later, and you can, claim some, take discretion too far. This, Arthur Dent, comes the cry from the furthest reach of the galaxy, and has even now been found inscribed in the mysterious deep space probe thought to originate from alien galaxy to a distance too hideous to contemplate. What is he, man or mouse? Is he interested in nothing more than tea and the wider issues of life? Has he no spirit? Has he no passion? Does he not, to put it in a nutshell, procreate? Those who wish to know more should read on. Others may wish to skip to the last chapter, which is a good bit. It has Marvin in it. Chapter 26 Arthur Dent allowed himself for an unworthy moment to think, as they drifted up, that he had very much hoped that his friends, who had always found him pleasant but dull, or more latterly odd but dull, were having a good time in the pub, but that was the last time for a while that he thought of them. They drifted up, spiralling slowly around each other, like sycamore seeds falling from sycamore trees in the autumn, except going the other way. As they drifted up, their minds sang with the ecstatic knowledge that either what they were doing was completely and utterly and totally impossible, or that physics had a lot of catching up to do. Physics shook its head and, looking the other way, concentrated on keeping the cars going along the Euston Road and out towards the Westway flyover, on keeping the streetlights lit and on making sure that when somebody on Baker Street dropped a cheeseburger it went splat on the ground. 
dwindling headily beneath them the beaded strings of light of London. London, Arthur had to keep reminding himself, not the strangely coloured fields of cricket or the remote fringes of the galaxy, lighted freckles of which faintly spanned the opening sky above them, but London, swayed, swaying and turning, turned. Try a swoop, he called to Fenchurch. What? Her voice seemed strangely clear but distant in all the vast empty air. It was breathy and faint with disbelief. All those things, clear, faint, distantly breathy, all at the same time. We're flying, she said. A trifle, called Arthur. Think nothing of it. Try a swoop. A sw she, her hand caught his, and in the second her weight caught it too, and stunningly she was gone, tumbling beneath him, clawing wildly at nothing. Physics glanced at Arthur and clotted with horror. He was gone too, sick with giddying, dropping every part of him, screaming, but his voice. They plummeted because this was London and he really couldn't do that sort of thing there. He couldn't catch her because this was London and not a million miles from here, 756 to be exact. In Beza, Galileo had also demonstrated the two falling bodies at exactly the same rate of acceleration, irrespective of their relative weights. They fell. Arthur realised as he fell giddingly and sickeningly that if he was going to hang around in the sky believing everything that the Italians had said about physics when they couldn't even keep a simple tower straight, that they were in dead trouble and damn well did fall faster than Fenchurch. He grappled her from above and fumbled for a tight grip on her shoulders. He got it. Fine. They were now falling together, which was already sweet and romantic, but didn't solve the basic problem, which was that they were falling, and the ground wasn't waiting around to see if they had any more clever drinks up their sleeve, but was coming up to meet them like an express train. He couldn't support her weight. He hadn't got anything he could support it with or against. The only thing he could think was that they were obviously going to die, and if he wanted anything other than the obvious to happen, he was going to have to do something other than the obvious. Here he felt his unfamiliar territory. He let go of her, pushed her away, and when she turned to face him in a gasp of stunned horror, caught a little finger with his little finger and swung her back upwards, tumbling clumsily up after her. Shit, she said as she sat panting and breathless on absolutely nothing at all, and when she had recovered herself, they fled on up into the night. Just below cloud level, they paused and scanned where they had impossibly come. The ground was something not to be regarded with any too firm an eye or steady hand, but merely to glance at as if it were in passing. Fenchurch tried some little swoops, daringly, and found that if she judged herself just right against the body of wind, she could put off some really quite dazzling ones with a little pirouette at the end, followed by a little drop which made her dress pillow around her. And this is where readers who are keen to know what Marvin and Ford Prefect have been up to all this while should look ahead to latter chapters, because Arthur could now wait no longer and helped her take it off. He drifted down and away, whipped by the wind, until it was a speck which finally vanished, for various complicated reasons, revolutionised the life of a family on Hounslow, over whose washing line it was draped in the morning. In a mute embrace, they drifted up until they were swimming amongst the misty wraiths of moisture that you could see feathering around the wings of an aeroplane, but never feel because you're sitting warm inside the stuffy aeroplane and looking through the little scratchy perspex window while somebody else's son tries patiently to pour warm milk onto your shirt. 
Arthur and Fenchurch could feel them, wispy, cold and thin, wreathed around their bodies, very cold, very thin. They felt even Fenchurch now protected from the elements only by a couple of fragments from Marks and Spencer, and they are not going to let the fourth of gravity bother them. Then merely cold or paucity of atmosphere could go with a whistle. The two fragments from Marks and Spencer, which as Fenchurch rose now into the misty body of the clouds, Arthur removed very, very slowly, which is the only way it is possible to do when you're flying, and also not using your hands, went on to create considerable havoc in the morning in respectively counting from top to bottom Isleworth and Richmond. They were in the clouds for a long time, because it was stacked very high, and when finally they emerged wetly above it, Fenchurch slowly spinning like a starfish, lapped by a rising tide pool, they found that above the clouds is where the nights get seriously moonlit. The light is darkeningly brilliant. There are different mountains up there, but they are mountains with their own white electric arctic snows. They had emerged at the top of the high stacked cumulonimbus and now began lazily to drift down its contours as Fenchurch eased Arthur in turn from his clothes, prized him free of all of them till they were gone, winding their surprised way down into the enveloping whiteness. She kissed him, kissed his neck, his chest, and soon they were drifting on, turning slowly in a kind of speechless T-shape, which might have caused even a forlornest fire dragon, had one flown past, replete with Pisa, to flap its wings and cough a little. There were, however, no forlornest fire dragons in the clouds, nor could there be, for, like the dinosaurs, the dodos, and the greater drubbed winter state bartle major, or the constellation Fraz, and unlike the Boeing 747, which is in plentiful supply, they were sadly extinct, and the universe shall never know their like again. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. 